Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Straw Dogs This record has been authorized by one Betsy LaVos at the behest of El Paso's Historical Society. The preceding documents were recovered from the long-deserted residence of Miss LaVos's grandfather. This recording serves only as a matter of public record and is not being made in conjunction with law enforcement. As most of the individuals mentioned have not had their identities validated, and those not named, whose identities we were able to confirm, were involved in no further matter of public record following the events detailed. These individuals were subsequently most likely to have gone missing or perished, and could therefore not be charged with any crimes. As such, the sole purpose of this recording is to detail the documents recovered, in case they are ever found to be of historical significance. November 16th. 1924. Dear Luke, I am writing to thank you for accommodating my family by providing us with your ranch. It will serve as ample protection and offer us a comfortable place to hide out until this whole affair blows over. I am deeply sorry if anything that unfolded in the past six weeks has brought you any shame or tarnished your reputation. You are a good man and do not deserve to be prosecuted by this mob. My family and I, of course, do not deserve to be prosecuted either, but I digress. After leaving town in the darkness of the early morning hours, we arrived here at this isolated location at about noon. For obvious reasons, I won't disclose the route we took in this letter, lest it be intercepted by those who would have me hang, but I wanted to let you know that the footpaths leading to the ranch are in respectable condition and that our horses were able to navigate them pleasantly, even in the pre-dawn darkness. Upon our arrival, my daughters, Helena and Charlene, scampered inside to explore their new room. Desiree accompanied me to the stable, where we tied up the horses. Your plentiful supply of apples and grain did not go unnoticed. The horses took to them gleefully, seeming quite fond of their new accommodations. Likewise, in the cellar, Desiree and I found abundant provisions for the family. At the sight of this safe, secluded house with its cellar full of food, my wife nearly broke down and cried. Your generosity has saved us, Luke. 
Without you, we may have perished from exposure or starvation, or, need I say, an even worse fate. When this lawless persecution ends and my dignity is restored, I assure you that you will be the first to benefit from my good fortune. I will keep you updated on the family and the condition of the ranch. Please let me know if there are any new developments in town. Sincerely, Adam. November 19th. 1924. Luke, it has been three days now that my family has called your ranch home, but still I can think of it only as a haven. We are all still tense, still expecting a gang of renegades to kick the door down and drag me away in search of some kind of perverted justice. The stress has needlessly affected us. We have no lanterns or candles lit at night as to prevent any sign of our occupancy. And as we sit in that cold darkness, every indiscriminate noise, every sign of perceived movement keeps us sitting in expectant terror, eyes peeled in the blackness of that parlor room. As I sat there last night, holding hands with Desiree and praying over our sleeping daughters, I thought for a moment that the buckskin rug at the center of the room moved slightly. Of course, it must have been a mere shadow animation created by the moonlight. I bring the incident up only to declare how much stress this situation has placed on me. When we do sleep, which is often in shifts and rarely for more than a few hours a night, Desiree and I have been having the most peculiar dreams. We see burning landscapes, vast swaths of scorched earth, mountains of bone piled higher than one can even perceive. In my dream last night, I saw a distant alien world growing ever nearer in the night sky until its features were finally clear enough for me to make out. And I can see that it was a second Earth, an identical copy of our own, looming uncannily in the vastness of space. And as in many of these dreams, I could sense that I wasn't alone. Something was there with me as I watched those apocalyptic visions. I didn't know just who or what it was, but I could feel its presence, and it felt like raw hatred. That feeling alone was enough to shake me out of my slumber, sending me staggering to my feet to check the windows and make sure our location hadn't been found out. I stood there, looking out at the property, shrouded in darkness, and I wondered how it had come to this. How had I found myself hiding my family at the unused ranch of a confidant, scaring myself into tremors in my sleep every night? But, alas, I could find no answer to my quandary. Some men are simply born to be punished, it seems. And if it would stop there, it's possible that I would be fine with it. It doesn't stop there, though. My youngest daughter, Helena, has been suffering bizarre dreams as well. She says that the decorative masks you have hanging on the wall in the parlor have been haunting her as she sleeps. Where did you acquire such a collection of masks, anyway? They convey expressions I have never encountered, their artistic rendering reminiscent of no culture I have ever seen or heard of. I can hardly blame her for finding the collection so frightening. There's something strange, something subtly inhuman about their appearance. Perhaps one day, when all this madness is behind us, 
you can tell me the story behind your eclectic mass collection. Until then, we will be here. Regards, Adam. December 2nd, 1924. Dear Luke, I hope that my mention of your mass collection in my last letter did not come off as ungrateful. The last thing I want to do is suggest that I find this ranch anything less than accommodating, or that I don't appreciate your generosity. I do. It's just that we've found some aspects of our stay, how do I say, disturbing. This morning, as dawn broke the horizon, Desiree and I were awoken by a horrifying series of screams. We immediately realized that the cries were emanating from our daughter's room and hurried in to investigate. There, we found both of the girls cowering in the corner of their room, their faces hidden in the palms of their tear-soaked hands. As we came to find out, the girls had awoken to find that a marionette had been placed on each of their beds in the night. I approached their beds and found two nearly life-sized dolls, marionettes, crafted expertly out of fine wood. The dolls were impeccably detailed, and though I wouldn't admit it to my wife at the time, would hardly even admit it to myself, their faces bore a striking resemblance to the faces of my daughters. I wanted to write to you, hoping I could clear the matter up. It occurred to me that perhaps it was you who had the dolls constructed with the likeness of my daughters, that you had sent them as a gift to ease the tension, something for my daughters to play with while they waited out this hellish controversy in isolation. If that is the case, I'd be glad to deliver the news to my family. Heaven knows it would put us at ease. Thanks as always, Adam. December 11th, 1924 Luke, being as I still haven't heard back from you, I'm going to assume that not much has changed back in town. I can still hear the mobs chanting my name, calling for the execution of an innocent man. It makes me sick to think about. Who knows what they would have done with me if I hadn't left town. Surely I wouldn't still be among the living. Thankfully, things here at the ranch have calmed down quite a bit. We're still having peculiar dreams, but we're grateful that there haven't been any more nighttime doll deliveries. Things have been pleasantly innocuous. Boring, you might say, which is exactly what I need right now. Exactly what I've been hoping for after these weeks of anguish and fear. Although, I suppose I'd be lying if I said things have been entirely boring. There was one thing that put me on edge, though I'm hesitant to even mention it. I was sitting at the dining table, looking out at the countryside through the two windows that line the east-facing wall. As you know, the windows are large and revealing, offering a substantial view of the beautiful landscape outside. Sitting there, I saw my wife walk into view through the right side window. She was returning to the house after fetching a pail of water from the well. I expected to see her pass from one window to the next, but she never emerged. The windows are only three feet apart, so I didn't understand how she could have walked by one of the windows but not the other. It was as if something was holding her in suspension between the windows, just out of sight. Or that as she stepped from one window to the other, something plucked her clean out of existence. The seconds ticked past, and when she still didn't appear, 
my palms began to sweat. I rose from my chair and pressed my face against the glass of the left window, angling my vision and hoping to catch sight of her in the corner of the pane. But she was nowhere to be seen. Had she disappeared? Had I ever seen her at all? My nerves beginning to feel raw, I made my way to the back door and set about looking for her. Scarcely had I made it through the door frame when I bumped headlong into her, causing her to spill half the pail of water. She recoiled in terror, watching the water splash against the dusty earth. Where were you? I asked with palpable urgency. The well, she retorted. Where do you think? And then added, What's gotten into you? But I, of course, had no reply. My reason and logic had been abandoned to chaos and paranoia. I was somewhat humiliated for having succumbed to such an irrational fear, but I quickly put the episode behind me. After all, there are obviously more important things for me to be concerning myself with. Sincerely, Adam. December 22nd, 1924. Dear Luke, I imagine you are busy, so I will keep this brief. I'm beginning to have doubts about the sustainability of my family's stay on this ranch. Being as we are already under pressure from the greater community, we're having a hard time living with the peculiarities of this house. I'm afraid I will appear thankless for having made this decision. After all, you were the only one brave enough to offer me aid in light of my accusation. But there comes a time when a man must put his family's needs first. And my family, I'm afraid, is right up next to the brink. With the intolerable dreams and the oppressive atmosphere of the residence, my family and I are struggling to stay sane. And worse yet, the strange effects of the house seem to now be reaching beyond its walls. Yesterday, as I was removing a fallen branch from the roof of the house, I gazed absently at the trunk of the tree it had fallen from. There, to my bewilderment, were the makings of a human face. The face, it appeared, had been shaped into the bark. I recoiled, nearly falling off the roof, and my confusion turned to dread as the face began to move. As the face adjusted and came into focus, it became clear to me just whose face it was. But I imagine I don't even need to tell you their name. I'm sure you can guess. That night, I dreamed of an eclipse. A great empty blackness that swallowed the sun at high noon. The figures were there again. I could feel them around me. Their naked bodies clamoring just out of sight. Waiting for something. Searching for something. I don't know how much longer I can stay here. It's like this place knows something about me, has seen something in me. Either that or my mind is falling into a great many fractured pieces, all of them floating in their own solitary darkness, none of them able to communicate anything to each other, none of them a whole representation of me, but none of them able to assemble the identity of the man they once comprised either. If, by some act of God, you are able to find another safe residence for my family. Please inform me. You represent our only remaining hope. Adam January 4th, 1925 Luke, 
I'm disheartened to write that things have gotten worse yet. Last night, as I climbed into bed next to my sleeping wife, my eyes fell upon a segment of her flesh exposed and illuminated by the glow of the moon. But it was not the healthy, fair skin that I've always known her to have. Deep, blotchy marks descended the length of her back, their shape and color reminiscent of black mold growing on a piece of rotten clapboard. The marks were moist to the touch, their thick, liquid texture coming off on my fingers and globs. Was it some kind of infestation? Some kind of infection exposing itself on her skin as that abhorrent black rash? Perhaps there is a kind of poisonous mold or mildew growing in this house. Maybe it's a fungus of sorts. Yes, it could be growing in the walls, its infectious spores being breathed into our lungs daily. Then, when it has infiltrated our bodies, it reaches its tentacles in and poisons our minds. It surely hasn't let up on my daughter. Daughters? To be honest, I have a hard time telling them apart anymore. Or even how many of them there are. I can't remember the last time I saw them both in the same room at the same time. And when I try to recall their features in my mind, I conjure two mirror images of the same girl. Neither of them looks familiar to me. Regardless, one or both of them continue to be plagued by perilous visions in their sleep. Whichever daughter it is keeps telling me about the man that visits her at night. The man that wears the masks, she tells me. He pulls his face off, and he has another face underneath. I considered boxing all the masks up, getting them out of the house and putting them in the stables with the horses. But something tells me that my efforts would be futile. That whatever those masks represent, it's already leached its way into my young daughter's mind. I remain at a loss. But since I still haven't heard back from you, I don't know what else to do. If you can send anything to confirm this correspondence, please do. Regards, Adam. January 9th, 1925. Dear Luke, I am writing to ask you how much you know about the neighbors you might have living in this area. When we first spoke of the place, you told me that there wasn't a living soul for miles in any direction. And with the weather being as cold as it is, I didn't expect any curious interlopers to be passing by. But, alas, I was wrong. After several nights of my daughter insisting on the presence of the mask-wearing man from her dreams, I was still prepared to write off her claims as frivolous imaginings of a child. That was, until we noticed the stranger. It was Desiree who first saw him. She was in the kitchen, skinning potatoes next to the window. Then I noticed something catch her eye. Her gaze fixed on the distant edge of the property, where the open, dry field meets the rim of the forest. I could tell she saw something there. So I rose and stood behind her, trying to avert my eyes from the growing black rash on her back. At the edge of the property, I could see a man. He was well-dressed and elderly, sitting at the base of a tree. I couldn't gather what he was doing or why he wanted to sit out there in the cold. But from every inference I could gather, he was quite content to be out there. I could see no suffering on his face, no frigid shiver in his bones. I could see no expression on him at all, in fact. 
He just sat under a black full-brim hat, staring out at the expanse before him. I hunched there watching him for what felt like hours, but may have only been minutes or seconds. I lost all track of time, in fact. I couldn't have even told you what time of day it was. The sun just seemed to hang in the sky, neither rising nor setting. And while I squinted my eyes and tried to remember the last time I saw the sky at night, the man disappeared. He left no sign of himself under that tree, and could be seen nowhere in the surrounding area. But, by some means, not a second later, there was a knock on the door. I went to the parlor and peered through the drapes, trying to decide if I should open the door. When he knocked the second time, I decided that he had probably seen our horses in the stable, probably knew that the house was occupied, and that if I wanted to appear inconspicuous, I should just greet the man and usher him kindly away. Still, as I moved to the front door, I couldn't understand how he'd covered all that ground between the tree and the front door in those mere few seconds. The tree he was sitting under had to have been at least 70 yards away. I shook the question off and pulled the front door open, taking in his vacant stare. But upon seeing me, the emptiness in his eyes dissolved, and his face was shaped by new meaning. He looked at me, I thought, strangely like a hungry man looks at an appetizing meal. His face was alight with an enticing luster, eyes wide, a gently sloping brow trying to conceal something predatory. I didn't know why he was there, but I was certain in that moment that he wanted something from me. Whether it was my pound of flesh or something darker, I couldn't say. Do you need something? I asked, gazing skeptically at the stranger. I held the door just wide enough for us to see each other without allowing him much of a look inside the house. Nevertheless, he capitalized on the opportunity to take in the room behind me. As his eyes jumped around just over my shoulder, I saw his stare again turn luminous. His face took bright again, the manifestation of what I was inclined to think was an appetite of some kind, a morbid kind of hunger awakening in him. His smile grew wide, almost too wide to interpret, and then he said, Do you like masks? I'm not sure, I managed, half cocking my head to catch a glimpse of the masks mounted on the wall behind me. Why? Do you? He frowned, as if my words had been an utter perplexity. Well, of course I do, he said emphatically. After all, I'm wearing one right now aren't I? I shrunk away from the statement, feeling the hairs on my neck begin to stand on end. And then, before I could even get a word in edgewise, he went on. May I ask, he began, and then paused as if to assess my demeanor, to take inventory of something he could see on my face. Do you, he went on, do you have something for me? I shook my head in stunned silence my lips unable to form any coherent words. Are you sure? he prodded. Are you certain that you don't have anything to give me? I decided I could no longer wait for my lips to form a response. Every second I spent in the presence of that man, whoever he or it was, felt like an interminable and uncanny kind of torture. I felt myself backing away from the door before my brain even sent the conscious message to do so. 
I slammed the door and retreated into the house, and as I did, could feel that I was retreating further into myself as well, all the way into the deepest, darkest hallways of my mind. Something had broken in me, Luke. You have to understand that. In that moment, when that man I didn't know said those words that couldn't be true, I could feel something break inside my mind. It was like a great wave breaking hard and loud against a rocky beach, its effect reverberating through my body with gruesome ease. I wasn't sure what had just happened, but I could tell even then that there would be no going back from it. If you read this, Please understand how dire our condition is. You may be our only salvation from this. Adam January 18th, 1925 Luke, having still received no word from you, I can only expect the worst. I suppose, at this point, it would do me no good to describe the circumstances of the family. It would make no difference if I told you that my wife is growing more ill by the day, that she's been sleeping for what seems like I couldn't even say how long. To be honest with you, I don't remember the last time I saw her awake. And it wouldn't change anything if I told you that my daughter wanders the halls at night, speaking to herself, or perhaps to her sister, if she has one, about the man that wears the masks. Or that sometimes, when it's quiet and late, I think I can hear another voice accompanying hers. A voice that's deep and crisp and disturbingly familiar. But I find myself unable to stop from writing you these letters either. Even if you're not receiving them. Even if they're being intercepted on their way to you. I'm holding fast onto that last remaining thread of hope. Everything that has unfolded since the incident has contributed to the slow decay of my family. This unjust witch hunt that I've been running from, me, an innocent man, running for his life, it can all be traced back to that one day. But when will it end? Is this my sentence? That which I'm serving right now? Was this series of events mobilized as some sort of punishment? I don't know what to make of it, and I know even less about how to stop it. This cruel world has forced me into a corner, one from which there can be no escape. I can neither turn myself in nor prove my innocence. What is there to do with a man like me? Well, as it seems, when the minds of men are made up, a kind of unspoken consensus is formed. And perhaps this consensus is accessible to a kind of intelligence that exists beyond our perceptions. A sentient arbiter of the unwritten laws of man. And, when this invisible authority sees fit, it reaches down into the lives of those deemed guilty and revokes them of any sense of purpose or hope. As in my case, quite obviously, it doesn't matter if these individuals are innocent or guilty, their identity is obliterated, and they're tossed aside like an expendable artifact. It reminds me, Luke, of that unforgettable passage in the Tao Te Ching. Of course, it's not a text I would ever tell Father that I've read, as it would obviously be seen as heresy within our sect. But the words are nevertheless prescient. 
Heaven and earth are heartless, the passage reads, treating creatures like straw dogs. Maybe that passage offers the only viable philosophy for me to adopt at this point. Once I can accept that I am but a straw dog, an inconsequential bit of matter in a sea of endless brutality, what more can they take away from me? Perhaps nothing. Or, perhaps I could still have much further to fall. Either way, the end is approaching. I can sense it. The penultimate moment in this chaotic misadventure will soon arrive. Then, and only then, shall my true fate be revealed. I hope to hear back from you before it's too late. Adam February 5th, 1925 To whom it may concern. It occurs to me now that my previous correspondence has been a farce. A land surveyor arrived at the ranch today to take measurements of the property lines. He told me that the ranch is going to be auctioned. It had apparently belonged to a farmer who died some months ago. His name was Lavos or something. I realize now that this Luke, in whom I have placed all of my confidence, was obviously not the man I thought he was. The Luke I knew was forthright, reliable, a good individual who is always interested in doing right by the Brotherhood. No, whoever sent me here, whoever orchestrated my family's demise, they were surely not Luke. They were a Judas. They may have looked like Luke, talked like Luke, felt like Luke's grip in the handshake we exchanged, but they were not him. Realizing that, I began to wonder who had been receiving all the letters I'd been writing. And from that question, I could arrange no hopeful answer. My fate had been sealed before I even stepped foot on this cursed property. Everything that's unfolded since has clearly been some sort of perverted punishment. It was possible, I had ventured to imagine, that this ranch is located within the confines of hell itself. But, I interjected, struggling to maintain some semblance of composure, were there really land surveyors in hell? No, this isn't hell. Hell is the thing that awaits me when all of this is over. I know that now. And I know it's coming soon. That, if nothing else, was proven to me today when the stranger returned. It was nearing dusk, or perhaps very early in the morning, which of the two I'm not entirely sure. Of late, the sun seems to hang in suspension, permanently rising and simultaneously setting. It doesn't seem to move, just levitates in a fixed position. It makes one feel as though time is spinning away from them at an incalculable speed. Seconds go by, but one gets the feeling that it's the slow wear of decades that they feel against their skin. Lost in a moment that could have been a whole day or a week, I was shaken to hear a knock at the door. After my disorienting meeting with the land surveyor earlier that day, I was in no mood for unexpected guests. But a kind of surrender had fallen over me, an acceptance. So I pulled the door open, and there again was the stranger, the mask-wearing man, as my daughter called him. I don't know what you want from me, I started, 
feeling entirely deflated. But whatever it is, just take it. Take it and get it over with. He cocked his head ever so slightly to the side, eyes glinting, seeming to relish in my unfortunate condition. And then he said, But I can't take it. You have to give it to me. But I don't know what it is, I shouted, nearly weeping. You will soon enough, he said calmly. Just reach into your pocket, and you'll find it right there. Trembling fingers fell to my waist and dug into the pockets of my trousers. My hand recoiled at the feeling of something foreign in my pocket. I didn't understand how anything could have been in my pocket. After all, I hadn't put anything in there. When I reached back and slowly pulled it out, my eyes narrowed. It was a lock of hair, I realized. My stare fell blank and terrified when I realized just whose hair it was. Impossible, I thought. How could... But it didn't matter. I dropped the lock of hair to the ground and staggered backwards. The stranger's bemused expression didn't change, though. He held his composure and calmly said, Pick it up. Pick it up and hand it to me. I can't, I tried, nearly crumbling in on myself. But I knew the effort was futile. Even without my conscious direction, I could see my hand lowering itself to the ground, grasping the shining lock of hair between two fingers and slowly handing it to the stranger. When he accepted his offering, he said nothing, merely turned and walked away. It was with that brief exchange that I felt my story ending. I am resigned to my fate, and urge whoever is reading these letters to come storm the ranch. Take me dead or alive. Get it over with. I would sign off this correspondence with a final goodbye, but I doubt that's even necessary. I imagine who or whatever has been receiving these writings doesn't need me to do so. They can already see what I've written, already know what things I've been hiding inside my head, and so this final letter will sit here on this table, next to me, where I'm seated with my rifle, watching the slow lilt of the trees through the window. The stagnant twilight that has commandeered my days seems to show no sign of letting up. So, I will just sit here and let time pass, or stand still, or do whatever it does with this ranch. In the other room, my family is silent. Perhaps they are sleeping. Perhaps they are dead. Or perhaps they were never here at all. The only tangible certainty that I can ascertain is that someone is here, or something. It is by means of some hand that these letters are being written. Whether that hand has ever belonged to me, only this place can know. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama. 
where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.